verse by verse and chapter by chapter is that we believe that it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. But what I've found over 14 years of listening to expositional Bible teaching is that no matter where we're at in Scripture, God is able to sometimes, uh, somehow outside of time, He's able to take the Scripture that we just so happen to be in and meet me right where I'm at. And it's interesting because we talk about God being sovereign over all things. And yet, if we make a system, sometimes I feel like we think we can kind of systematize God out of things, and yet He works within our systems. And so this morning, we're going to open up Revelation chapter 3, and as we do that, what you're going to find is there's a lot of parallels in what was going on in this Sardis church that we are experiencing in our day and age. And I forgot my clicker. I think I pulled a hammy reaching down for that. So that said, Revelation chapter 3 this morning. If you'll remember with me these letters we've been studying, that uh, chapter 1 in Revelation is what what God told John to write down. He said, write down the things that are, uh, the things that have taken place. He talks about Jesus and has this vision. And then he says, write down the things which are. So he's writing right now in the letter of Revelation. John is on the island of Patmos and he's in exile. And God's giving him a vision. Specifically, Jesus is speaking to him and sharing with him specific things he wants to tell to these seven churches. And as he does that, he writes to seven physical churches. Now, I've showed you the map before, and I don't think I have it this week, but these churches are all essentially like, kind of like a, on a mailing route. They're all about 30 or so miles from one another, and they go on this big loop. And if you would start at the island of Patmos and go to the coast of Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey, it would start at Ephesus, and then go through all these churches in order. And right now, we are in the church of Sardis. Now, Sardis' location is approximately 30 miles south of Thyatira, along the Hermes River. And the Acropolis is up on a hill. The Acropolis in a a Roman community was essentially the stronghold. It was where the government was placed, and it was also where there was a, a, a rock wall around the city. And ancient cities always had walls and they had gates. We're not talking about a gate that you let your cattle in and out of a field. A gate was a place where governance was taking place and decisions were made. There was a city council that would sit inside the gate, and it was also a place where you could let people come in in a safe way. It was like airport security, but way better, because if you didn't do things right, they would take care of you, if you know what I mean. And so they would make sure that everybody was vetted as they came into the city. But it was 1,500 feet above the valley floor on a rocky escarpment. That's where the ancient city of Sardis is. Now, Sardis is still there. And today, everybody lives down in the valley below where ancient Sardis was because guess what's there? The river. And hopefully, we can relate to that. Like, we want to be where the river is. And so, they live down there. There's much of fishing. There's, uh, you know, all kinds of stuff going on. But this place, Sardis, was considered nearly invincible. I don't know about you guys, but when I hear something is considered invincible, I think of things like the Titanic. You know, the ship that cannot be, it cannot be sunk. Pride comes before the fall, right? And so Sardis lives in this nearly invincible place. 
But at the same time, it's on a very important trade route to the place called Susa, which was the capital of Persia at the time. And because it's on this trade route, it's between the coast where goods can be shipped to and from, and then the capital. So everybody that has to go to the capital capital, has to go through Sardis. So they're on an important street. But then also, it's a very important commercial and industrial city because guess what they did here? They minted gold and silver coins. Now, why do you think they did it here? Because there were gold in them, there are hills. There was a place for them to get gold. And so you could see where safety-wise, it was the place to live. There's high-walled city. They're up on a big rocky escarpment. This isn't the day and age where you could just send a missile up there. You would have to like use a catapult. They were kind of safe. Uh, they couldn't be taken over. But also, it was on a trade route, and also they had money. So they were pretty safe, right? So all of those things are good things, but they can become God things to us. They can replace God in our lives. And so we have here, it was called for 600 years, the pride of Asia. Do you think that that's coincidental? That it, was, it was literally called pride. Now we talk about pride, but everything, every time that pride is dis, described in the Bible, it's actually a negative thing. It's actually one of the seven things that God hates. And so all that is in the world, 1 John chapter 2, the the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and then the pride of life. And so they were living off of, in in John's day and age, they were living off of past success. I don't know about you guys, but I believe that as a nation, in many ways, we're living off of past success. Maybe not economically, but definitely spiritually. We used to be known as the one nation under God, and yet we still call it that, and yet I wonder what that really means anymore to most people. And yet when John wrote, the city was dying, and the church was all but dead. And so this is the state of the church that they were in. Now, I have a few pictures there for you. A picture from the Acropolis at the top of this mountain where Sardis was placed. On the upper right-hand corner of the screen, you can see kind of the city wall and, and how they would have people that would sit on the edge of that wall and watch to make sure they were not being approached by enemies. And you can see the, the view from a, a further down mountain range of the actual hill itself or the mountain. So religiously speaking... They weren't just Christians there. There was also a pagan temple of a god, probably uh, mispronouncing it, called Sibyl, her goddess. Now, this goddess could be described as the great mother, was the goddess who had once given birth to the other gods, to the first humans, to the animals, and to wild nature. In short, she was the universal mother. And it must be noted that as goddess of birth, she was not the goddess of fertility. Interestingly enough, because later on she's known as several other different names because these foreign gods, these pagan gods, would actually move from area to area as tradition would pass them on, and then they would become suddenly gods over different things. So uh, according to Lycia, she was known as Leto. The Ephesians that were on the coast called her Artemis. Or some of you might know her as Diana. 
and there was this big temple. When we talked about uh, the Ephesian city, there was this temple that was dominant over the entire city. And uh, worship of her was in several different ways. One was uh, through lasciviousness or sexual immorality. And so the Hittites called her Hepat, Matar, and Agdistus, and Sibyl. These are all names of the goddess that were Phrygian names. So later they called her something else. But I think that in many ways, uh, eventually it becomes what the U.S., we'd say, Mother Earth. So there are actually roots to words like this. When we say things that are part of our modern vernacular, there's pagan roots to them. So we need to pay attention to what things mean. But it's interesting because uh, when I was growing up, and maybe some of you, there was a little show on called Captain Planet. And he was all, all the different elements were involved. And yet they talked about this current, more current God called Gaia. And Gaia was a derivation of Sybil or this goddess, Mother Earth. And so it's interesting where things come from. But I, I grew up in the 80s and the 90s. I mean, we had Captain Planet. He's a hero. He was going to save the planet. And so um, that's not necessarily a bad thing. We're called to be good stewards of the place that we live. And yet we're not to worship the planet. And if anything, this is just a perverted version of really what God is. He's the source of all life. This is blasphemy. And so, but this was the, the person that they revered in their uh, little city. And so about Sardis, what about the church? We've talked about politically, economically, socially, religiously, but let's talk about Sardis and the church that was there. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 3, verse 1 where Jesus continues to speak directly to these churches. Remember, there's three applications. There's one that's an overarching. Many theologians see these letters as letters to different ages in church history. And so if you were in the the age of Roman Catholicism with last week, we'd kind of move on to the Protestant Reformation with this week, where there was reform that took place. I don't need a priest to be between me and God, but instead now we have this personal relationship with God that should affect everything. And yet what we find about the Reformation is that many good things came out of it, but it wasn't a complete Reformation. God doesn't call us to be reformed. He actually calls us to be born again. To, to die to ourselves and to become new, a new creation in Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And so in chapter 3, verse 1, Jesus speaking says to the church, the angel of the church in Sardis, write, these things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. And so you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. I don't know about you guys, but if Jesus said this about me, he's clearly saying, I'm a hypocrite. You say you're alive, and yet you're really dead. You say that you are Jesus Christ's disciples, and yet there's really no life in you proving that you don't know Jesus. And so this was a church full of people called by the name of life. 
And in Acts, when Peter's giving his sermon, he says, or, or maybe it's uh, Stephen's sermon, he says, you murdered the author of life. And so he says, you have a name that you're Christ, and yet you're dead. How can this be so? Well, Jesus said this to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 15 and verse 7. He said this. He said to the Pharisees, hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy concerning you, saying, these people draw near to me with their mouth, They honor me with their lips, by their words, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And so while they honor me with their lips, they honor me with their words, even calling calling themselves by my name, and yet (laughs) their hearts are far from me. God's not interested in the appearance of things. He's not interested in what we have to say. He cares about our heart because out of our heart flow what we do. Out of our hearts flows what we say. Out of our hearts flows how we live. And so these people in Sardis are high above the valley. They're comfortable. They feel safe. They are, guess what? In control of their lives. Did you recognize that Control is an illusion. Right now, we're in a situation in our country where we're realizing that we cannot control everything. We can't control our health. We can do all that depends upon us, but we can't always control our health. One example of this, let's not even talk about the underlining elephant elephant in the room. Let's talk about lice. Let's talk about something that maybe not all of us has had, but we've all come close with other people that have had it, and we've all had that panic, especially moms. Like, what are we going to do? Now, as a guy with no hair on my head, I've never worried about lice. Never had them. I could get them. All of a sudden, it might get here, right? But the reality is, I can do all that depends upon We got this $15 bottle of spray because we got this little girl with the longest, most beautiful, apparently lice-tasty hair, and we spray it every day. I say we, I mean my wife. And she sprays it, she brushes it out, and then we put her to bed at night, and then we put her hair up when she's at school. We do all the stuff that the experts say to do. And yet, what does she come home with? The L-I-C-E. What are we going to do? Well, we quarantine every blanket we got right in the middle of winter. That's great. And then we wash everything. We, we make sure the laundromat gets a little bump in their economy. And we do all that we can, right? We, we burn. You know, we go plague on it. And yet, we still bring it into the house with little knits. I don't even know how my wife sees those things. But she sees them. She's got, that, she's got the thickest glasses in the world. And yet, she could see, like, anyway... My point is, is that control is an illusion. And what we're freaking out about right now is not whether or not we could get sick. What we're freaking out about is that we are not in control, which I believe God is trying to show us that we cannot control everything. And so with that being said, these people in Sardis are in control of their lives. 
And many times we feel like that if we're in control of things and we rule over things, we make enough laws and then if we do this and we shimmy around and then, and then we'll be safe. And yet what does God say? In Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, he says, Lean not in your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge me and I will make your path straight. So God's called us into a life a, a real alive life of following and trusting him, which requires continuing to walk in the spirit. So I would submit to you when he says in chapter three, verse one, these things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, he's always in each of these letters, he points out a characteristic about himself. And in this case, he points out this characteristic. I have the seven spirits. Jesus having the seven spirits. So turn with me to Isaiah in chapter 11 in verse 2. Chapter 11, verse 2 of Isaiah. Isaiah is prophesying to the nation of Israel. And as he's prophesying, he says this. Verse 1, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Now, this rod that's going to come forth from the stem of Jesse, who's the stem of Jesse? King David. And out of this King David will come a branch that will sprout out of his roots. And if you read the beginning of Matthew, we know that the descendant of David is Jesus Christ himself. And then it says in verse 2, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of strength or might, the spirit of knowledge and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. So the seven spirits is not seven individual spirits, but it's seven manifestations of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit manifests himself in Jesus, the Spirit of the Lord, one, the Spirit of wisdom, two, the Spirit of understanding, three, the Spirit of counsel, four, the Spirit of might, six, five, sorry, learned in, I went to Farmington, so we skipped four and five, um, the Spirit of knowledge, six, and the Spirit of the fear of the Lord, this is the sevenfold spirit, a sevenfold witness of the Holy Spirit. And it's upon Jesus. So when he speaks to these seven churches, he's speaking from this place, filled with the Spirit. He is God. And it says in verse 3, his delight is in the fear of the Lord. God's not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind so that we can overcome. And so this Spirit says that Jesus, his delight is to fear the Lord. He shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will, shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt of his waist." And so when he speaks to this church, Sardis, it says here, he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes. He doesn't care what people look like. 
or what they act like outwardly. He, wasn't, he won't decide or judge by the hearing of his ears, by what we say, but he judges based on what he sees. His eyes divide down and they see to the heart of the matter because the heart is always the heart of the matter. So to this church, he says, I know your works. He says that to every church. Doesn't imply there's good works. He just says, I know your works. He says that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. So God has called us into life. And what makes the Christian alive is not saying that we're alive or preaching that we're alive or calling us alive. What makes us alive is the Holy Spirit within us. And if you turn with me to Romans chapter 8, in verse 12, he says this, Romans 8 in verse 12, Paul writes to the Roman church and he says, therefore, brethren, we are debtors. Not to the flesh to live according to its desires, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father." The Spirit of Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. So where the Spirit is, there is life. So Sardis, the life of the church, was not present. They had the form, they had the function, but they didn't have the unction. The unction in the Christian life is not just about doing the right things. It's by being empowered by the Spirit to live the victorious Christian life. So the source of this life is found in John chapter 6, verse 53 through 57. There was a time where Jesus had just told the multitude that was following him. He said, if anyone would come after me, if you really want to live for me, if you're really my disciples, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now that's creepy. John chapter 6, verse 53. Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. What does that mean? He says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I abide in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead, he who eats this bread will live forever. And he said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. So fast forward to verse 60. 
He says, therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, and I think we would have responded the same way, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? You're meaning to say that if, in order for me to have life, I have to drink blood. Now, if you know the Old Testament, Leviticus says, if anybody among you drinks the blood or eats the blood, you should be put to death because the life is in the blood. So is he calling us to break the law? But when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples, verse 61, complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? I think Jesus says a lot of things that should offend us in the right way. Verse 62, he says, What then, if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? He says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were and who did not believe and who would betray him. So he's not asking us to physically eat his body. We read the scriptures. Nobody went up and took a zombie bite of Jesus. Nobody went up like a vampire and drank his blood. Nobody caught it. I, and I know that's creepy, but imagine if you're in this crowd and Jesus says, you have to drink my blood. And that's the only way you can get eternal life. I would be creeped out. I'd have that little, that, that sounds gross. But he's saying, unless you partake in me, and he's not his flesh, although he was God in the flesh, but God is spirit, and he is to be worshiped in spirit and in truth. And so the beginning of life was described to, uh, in John chapter 3, a few pages to the left, when speaking with Nicodemus, who approached him, he says, uh, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that, they do, that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I believe one of the biggest problems in the church at Sardis wasn't that there weren't people in it that assented to the idea of Jesus or the idea of God, a Savior. The problem wasn't that they weren't there in their mind. It's that they hadn't received the Holy Spirit. Jesus says to them, and they hadn't been born again. The Christian life isn't about pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. The Christian life is about dying to yourself and then saying, God, come live in me and live through me. I want to repent of my sin. I want to believe in you that you're the only way to be forgiven. And I want to walk in that newness. And it's only God that can grant repentance. But we have to believe and then take steps of repentance. And so in John chapter 3, he says, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter his second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. We see the wind, is what he's saying. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear the sound of it. You see the effects of the wind. But you cannot tell where it comes 
from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So there's this new life that impacts the life of that who carries it. So interestingly enough, if you look at the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus departs. And what it says in Acts chapter 1, and it's often looked over, verse 1 through 5, the writer Theophilus, who has written the gospel account of Luke to his doctor owner slash boss, Theophilus writes the account, and then he refers to that account in Acts chapter 1, verse 1. He says, the former account I made, the gospel of Luke, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. He wrote an account of all that Jesus began to do. And yet in chapter 1, we see Jesus ascending to heaven, sitting at the right hand of God the Father, sending his Holy Spirit, as was promised, to indwell men and women, to empower them to continue the work that Jesus, what? Began to do. So the Holy Spirit is the unction of the church, and if he's not there, there's no life. And so Acts chapter 1 is what Jesus began to do and to teach, and after his Spirit is poured upon believers... Acts chapter 2 through 28 is what Jesus continues to do and I would submit to you begins to do and teach through the church filled with the Holy Spirit. So salvation happens. We're born again. We have victory over sin. Our life changes. And if it hasn't changed, I would question whether or not the Spirit is there. We experience the peace and the protection of God, that's a good thing. But eventually, if we're not careful, we start to rest in that and not continue to walk in that. We start to forget who saved us. And in Galatians chapter 3, verse 3, as Paul writes to the Galatian church, he says, you foolish Galatians. That's encouraging, right? But he said, you're taking what God began in the Spirit, and you're now trying to bring it to perfection or maturity in the strength of the flesh. And we do that, right? We, we, I, if you've been born again, you know that first love. You know that what, when you, you became saved, you recognized you were a sinner. And you recognized that you didn't deserve God's favor. And then your life changed. And you're just like, this is the best thing ever. And then over time, we become dusty and rusty Christians that have come up with systems. And so our life changes, and yet... The system is what we give the, the, the glory to. And then over the long run, we start to forget that it was the Holy Spirit's presence and his leading and his changing of our hearts that's made us new and has given us wisdom and the fear of the Lord and the spirit of counsel, and the spirit of strength and all those things that he gives us. We start to worship what he's done in our life versus worshiping the God who is still in our life. And so all of that said... We go on to verse 2. My clicker has forgotten who puts the batteries in it. He says to this church, you have a name that you're alive, but you are dead. You're trusting in your own strength. So here's what happened in Sardis. Here's why ancient Sardis is no longer there. There was a time 
I forget when, but there was uh, this, these people that lived in Sardis, and they used to have watchmen over the walls. They would watch over the, the city, they would watch the hill, the mountain, to make sure there was nobody coming up to take them over. And over time, they said, you know what, we're kind of safe up here. Why do we need to keep putting watchmen out? We're, we're comfortable, we're safe, there's really no threat. Uh, nobody can climb 1,500 feet. And so they, they got comfortable. And little by little, they stopped putting watchmen on the wall. And then there was an emperor of... Uh, there was an emperor over Persia by the name of Cyrus. And he laid siege over this city. And they would lay siege so that you couldn't get out and get goods. You'd just be stuck there. And they would starve you out until finally you'd crack and you'd have to come out or you would die. So as they're laying siege, they didn't put any watchmen on the wall. They were comfortable. They were safe, impenetrable. And so little by little, the army that was below started sending out one person at a time, one person at a time. And they'd climb over the wall and they'd stay there until they had a, a whole bunch of soldiers. And since they couldn't defeat them from without, they would slowly creep in and they destroyed the city. They sacked it. They took all of their gold. They took everything that they trusted in. They took their economy. They destroyed the walls and they let the rest of the army in and they overtook it. And so I would submit to you, when Jesus says to this nation, to the church, we're not talking to the non-believers. We're talking to the church at Sardis. He says this to them, be watchful. Be watchful strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die for i have not found your works mature or perfect before god don't be like the city that you live in don't stop watching over the walls be watchful now for the christian is he talking about setting up sentries with guns ready to shoot people for jesus is he talking about being watchful and making sure we got enough stinking teepee is he talking about being watchful and, and not helping anybody else that might be sick? Is he talking about protecting ourselves or is he saying, be watchful and pray? Trust the Lord. The city stopped being watchful and they were sieged by Cyrus of Persia because they were too confident in their location's safety. And I believe the American church, and you can stone me for this later, is confident in our location and in the place that God has placed us, and we've stopped being watchful. And that's why it takes, in my opinion, kind of an ungodly man, even though he's a good president, he, it takes him telling us, hey, let's have a national day of prayer. Instead of us saying, why don't we make every day a national day of prayer? Now, I'm thankful that we have leadership that's pointing us to trust in God, but we are the foot soldiers, we should be telling people, put your faith in God. And yet I don't believe by and large we're doing that. I think we're more affected by the pandemonium than we are having an effect. Now what's the effect that we could have on the pandemonium? Now, I have there for you several other notes that I'm not going to touch all on because I have something else I want to read to you. He tells them, he says, be watchful. And I believe that most of the Christian life is about praying and asking God, what do you want me to do? He says, strengthen what remains that is about to die. He, he says, you have a name that you're alive and yet you're really dead. Strengthen even the tiniest flickering flame of faith. 
What are the things that remained? Paul wrote in Corinthians first chapter, or 13, chapter, verse 13, he says, faith, hope, and love, these things remain, and the greatest of these is love. Strengthen your faith. Add to your faith. Soak yourself in the word of God. Trust in the Holy Spirit to give you direction. Pray without ceasing. Be thankful in all circumstances. Fellowship with the brethren. These things will encourage you when nothing else that you have been encouraged by in the past will. Uh, Hope in Christ alone. Faith in God alone. Love. Live out of the fact that you've been loved by God. God saw this stuff coming. These will always remain. They cannot be shaken. Remember. He says, remember how you received salvation in the first place. By grace, something you didn't deserve. Through faith in Christ alone. It was a free gift, lest anybody should boast. The wages of sin is what? Death. The free gift of God is salvation in Christ Jesus. He says, Be watchful, strengthen what remains, remember how you received salvation in the first place, and then repent. Repent. Repentance is a change of heart that leads to a change of action. What are the ways that you can change your actions based on this repentance? And so, before I forget to read the rest of the verses, he says, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Faith comes by hearing. If you want to strengthen your faith, hearing and hearing comes through hearing the word of God. He says, hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. It's interesting because Jesus told his disciples, be watchful and wait. For if you are not watchful and you don't wait, I will come at an hour that you do not expect. And yet in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul wrote to the Thessalonians who, by the way, they majored on the second coming of Jesus. That was something they were very strong upon. They were afraid of them, some of them, that they missed the second coming of Jesus. And yet in 1, Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 4, Paul writes to them, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or whether we sleep, we should live together with him." He says, therefore, comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. So if there's something that we can do to be a voice in our culture, to impact culture rather than be impacted by it, it's comfort each other with these words. So 
verse 4 through 6, chapter 3, he says, You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. They've not gone over to pagan gods. They've not given over to lasciviousness or living for the flesh. They're among you. There are those in this church, he says, who have not defiled their garments. They shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. They've overcome despite the odds. They've trusted. They've anchored themselves to faith in Jesus despite the fact that nobody else around them has. He says, they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. They will be found worthy. Now, how is this even possible? He says, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments and will not, he says, I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. So how is it even possible that we could be clean in the sight of God? Well, true repentance isn't cleaning ourselves up. It's putting off the old and putting on Christ. He talks about these clean robes. Where do I get these robes? Even bleach can't clean out the stains I put on them. And if that's true of the, the sins of spilling on my shirt, how much more the sins that I have committed in this life? Well, in Ephesians... Paul writes in chapter 4, verse 17, he says, This I say, therefore, and I testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you, verse 20, have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts, and instead be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you put on the new man, which was created according to God, in true righteousness and holiness. He cleanses us. He gives us royal robes. He gives us robes that when we walk before him, we're pure and blameless. And I love this because we don't have to cleanse ourselves. So can I, how can I know that I'll be saved? And I would submit to you that practical cleansing is an outward indicator that we've been positionally cleansed. Salvation, when God says you are saved, when you repent of your sin, when you believe and His Spirit comes to dwell in you, you're saved positionally. And that, yet you and I both know we still have this war between the flesh and the Spirit. And so practical cleansing daily is something that we need. And Ephesians chapter 5 says that Jesus washes us in the water of the Word. He uses his word to cleanse us. But then he also says, not only will you walk before him in white robes, but your name will be written in the book of life. This, this book of life is like, if you've ever watched movies or been a part of the club scene, you show up and they got a list. And if you ain't on the list, you don't get in. 
But this is a club of righteousness. This isn't a club of iniquity and dark lights and sin. This is a place that everyone, whether they know it or not right now, will desire to be in when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And apparently there's this book. And for the saved, their names are written in it. And what he said, he's not saying that our names, some names are blotted out. He's saying for those who have their names written in the Lamb's book of life, that if you are an overcomer because of God's presence within you, he's not going to blot your name out. He's not going to get out the whiteout and mark it up. You know what? They really messed up today. He's going to say, are, are you trusting in me? Have you trusted in me or for your salvation? Have you trusted in me for spiritual salvation, eternal salvation? But are you trusting me for daily salvation? And so it's important that our name's written in the Lamb's book of life. But this is comfort to those who are living in an unknown situation. And so as we close, I want to read with some, something to you that my pastor shared this week on the Facebooks. I like to say the Facebooks and act like I'm not on it all the time. Act like I don't even know anything about Facebook. I'm going to search real quick. And I'm going to look this up because I want to quote the right guy. Come on, internets. It's not working. There it is. A guy by the name of Dennis Kang write, wrote this. He put it on the Facebooks. He says this, and he's, of course, talking about our current climate. And we as the church should be the calm voice in the midst of actual pandemonium, not just some pandemonium. He said, in the third century, there was a pandemic that was sweeping across Italy, Africa, and the Western Empire. The scholar Kyler Harper believes it was actually the Ebola virus. At its height, it killed more than 5,000 people every day in Rome. Some cities had their population wiped out by more than 60%. So this is like pandemonium. This is crazy. Imagine, 60%. During the pandemic, people panicked. Many people abandoned the sick in ditches and left the dead unburied. People fled areas where there was sickness and abandoned the elderly, the sick, and the disabled. But there was one class of people who refused to panic. The last non-Christian emperor was a man named Julian. And what he wrote in his book was that the recent Christian growth was caused by their moral character, even if they were pretending. He was skeptical of them. He said the growth in the Christian church was caused by their moral character, even if pre pretended, and by their benevolence towards strangers and care for the graves of the dead. In a letter to another priest, he wrote, the impious Galileans, we know who those were, support not only their poor, but they support ours as well. Everyone can see that our, la our people lack aid from us. These Christians are taking care of not only their sick, but also ours, and we don't even do that. Christians, instead of leaving the city, stay at great risk to themselves. They cared for the poor, the sick, and the elderly. 
the historian Rodney Stark said that you can trace the rise of Christianity. I want you to hear this. You can trace the rise of Christianity to the three major plagues in the second, third, and sixth century. Every time there was a plague, there was a Christian revival. Christianity burst open and grew exponentially. He said Christianity grew because people looked at the incredible witness of Christians during times of crisis. Instead of panicking, they demonstrated tremendous faith and compassion for others. If you are a believer, this is an incredible opportunity to bear witness, to be people of faith and compassion. And then he says this, instead of, panic, instead of hoarding, give generously. Instead of panicking, respond thoughtfully. It's time to demonstrate a love that is sacrificial and a hope that no disease can destroy. This is the moment where we prove what we really believe. And so, Father, I by no means want to make light of the fact that people are getting sick and people have died. But the time that we live in is a time that you sovereignly placed each one of us in.